Hello and welcome to the MD DDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and tonight we'll be wrapping up our series on apologetics. We've been on this for six or seven weeks now, and tonight is actually my favorite lesson from this entire series. It's a lesson on Did Jesus Rise? So we'll be looking at the historical record for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Obviously, this is a super duper important topic as it pertains to Christianity and to faith in Jesus and who he says he was. If Jesus did not resurrect physically as he said he did, Christianity is really pretty silly, to be honest. And so I would say that Christianity hinges on this event almost as much as anything else. And so the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus is extremely central to Christian theology, and that is why we will be studying it tonight. So Dr. David Flatt will be with us, bringing his medical uh, perspective to this topic as well, and I really think it's going to be a great lesson for you to tune into and to learn from. So without further ado, let me turn it over to David. All right, well, thanks for coming tonight, guys. I know everyone's busy. Um, some of you took a big test today, and so excited that that's over. Uh, listen, so tonight's the last night of the apologetic series, so probably I, my perception is that for most of you that might be kind of disappointing. I think most of you guys have kind of enjoyed this series, um, but if that if you, this has not been your favorite series because of whatever, then that, that's good news, so we'll start a new one next week. We're going to do a series called Reflect, and so... <clears throat> The idea uh, is that we're made in the image of God, the Imago Dei, and so how do we reflect that image in the culture? So we'll talk about some kind of controversial issues, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, how we honor God um, in our sexuality with our, um, uh, and with our lives. So Kyle will start us next week, off next week, with the implications of the Imago Dei. So I think a lot of the Christian social witness on issues like poverty, racism, um, just a lot of stuff kind of reflects back that, that we're all made in the image of God. So that's what the college is going to talk about uh, next week. But this week we're going to finish up our apologetic series and talk about did Jesus rise. And so in a lot of ways, um, this topic is maybe the the trump card of the whole apologetics deal, right? So we spent um, we spent a week talking about does it matter if God exists? We spent a week or several weeks talking about um, reasons to think that God does exist from science and nature and things like that. And then a week talking about how science and faith interact. Well, if this is true, if Jesus rose, then you kind of get all the other issues thrown in too, right? So if Jesus rose from the dead, then of course it matters that God exists because Jesus rose from the dead and he said it matters if God exists. And of course God does exist because Jesus claimed to be God, was murdered, and rose from the dead. So I hope that you were persuaded by some of the other topics we talked about. I, I find them mostly convincing. Um, but if you weren't convinced by the Kalam cosmological argument or the, the argument uh, from design in, in, the, uh, in the universe that Kyle gave, if, the, if none of that totally connected with you, and this does, then that's okay, because this is, this is really kind of the, uh, the key point for Christianity. And really, this was what the first Christians preached. I think about like Acts 17, that's at the top of your page. This is a sermon that Paul's given, and Paul's saying that God, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he, whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. So, According to the New Testament, why can we? How can we know 
that God will judge the world and that we can receive forgiveness in our judgment from God, the reason we can believe that is because God raised him from the dead. That's what Acts 17 says. Maybe this is a little bit more explicit. So this is maybe the famous resurrection verse in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, So this is, again, Paul. He says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. So what is the thing that he passed on of first importance? That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So this is the gospel by which you're saved if you hold firmly to it. And that gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So... It's not just maybe some kind of like after-the-fact thing we made up for like our Bible study. From the very beginning, um, the first Christian followers were preaching, Christianity is true, it matters, we can base our life on this because Jesus rose from the dead. Which begs the question, um, did he really rise from the dead? So here's a, um, a, a neat story, uh, I think, to share. Like, think about Western civilization and kind of where we've been and where we're going and what all that means. Of course, there's famous episode is World War II, right? So you have this awful war for a lot of reasons. Um, one of the kind of culprits, or not cul- victims of the war, so to speak, was uh, the German people. Of course, not the Nazis were the perpetrators of the war, the, the evil villains. But of course, there were people in Germany just kind of living their lives who were devastated. So a lot of the kind of... Um, damage within the war was in Germany because that's where a lot of the war was fought. So after the war's over, Conrad Adenauer is the new kind of leader of Germany and he invites Billy Graham to come over and talk with him. So here's here's the, how the conversation goes. Ch- German Chancellor Conrad Adenauer invited the evangelist Billy Graham to visit Germany following World War II. Upon Graham's arrival, the two men engaged in deep conversation. At one point in the discussion, Conrad Adenauer looked into the eyes of the evangelist and said, Mr. Graham, do you believe Jesus Christ really rose from the dead? Graham, rather stirred by this question, said, If I didn't believe in the resurrection of Christ, I would have nothing left to preach. Mr. Adenauer paused a little longer, walked over to the window, and looked out at the debris and destruction of the city below and said, Mr. Graham, outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I know of no other hope for mankind. I think in the middle of that kind of devastation, you think that the evilness from his own countrymen, the evil, the destruction that that caused all around him, you got to think, as a politician, that's kind of what despair would be. we got evilness on the inside, we got destruction from the outside, how do we, would we ever rebuild this? And I think a message even for us today, you think about the kind of destruction in our own hearts and our own moral and religious lives, the only hope is something supernatural. That's why the resurrection matters so much, because the question is, can you be resurrected, right? We've talked about like how sinful we are. Is there hope for us? And I think the answer is kind of the same. If Jesus rose, there is. If he didn't, our faith is in vain. So let me kind of just press on that a, a little bit harder. So these are our first few blanks here. The importance and meanings of Jesus' resurrection. So if Jesus rose from the dead, it gives your life significance. This kind of harbors back or echoes back to what Kyle was talking about uh, before. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead... 
Our existence does not terminate at the grave. Our lives matter because we will not end in nothingness but cross over into eternity. So you're not just the product of time and chance going to die and disintegrate and get eaten by worms if Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, what you do today matters because you're a forever person and your, your existence is going to extend into eternity. The resurrection also gives hope to suffering, right? So if we live in a world without the resurrection, then your suffering is capricious, will never be redeemed, and has no kind of meaning or significance. Why do you suffer? Because you live in a universe of randomness and crap's going to happen to you. And some kids are going to die early and some people are going to get cancer and there's some people are going to get poor or their house is going to catch on fire. Or you're going to be have clinical depression and that just stinks because you're one of the unlucky ones. That's really the answer to suffering in a resurrectionless universe. But if the resurrection is real and it really happened, then your suffering is pointing you to something greater, right? So like Paul talks about, this momentary suffering will not compare to the glory that awaits, right? So that's, that's the ho- there is hope in suffering if Jesus rose. And um, most importantly, if the resurrection is true, then there's hope for our salvation. And this was kind of the argument Paul's making in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if Jesus is not raised, then you are still in your sins, right? Um, and so, of course, Paul was talking to a religious people, not kind of a secular people who we would normally talk to. But it's still true. If Jesus is not raised, then all the sins that you've committed against the Holy God, there is no answer to that question. Remember, at the very beginning of the series, we had this question like, our culture asks the question, God, how can you condemn people? But really, the question is, God, how can you save people? How can you and your holiness be in the presence of us as sinners? If the resurrection didn't happen, there's no answer to that question. Right? God's holiness, His nature, would preclude Him from being in a relationship with us without the resurrection. But if the resurrection is true, then through Jesus' death to sin, Jesus' death to sin on the cross and victory over sin in the resurrection, we can overcome our own sin and death and be made alive in Christ. So those are the two great enemies of human nature, sin and death. Sin is our spiritual death, of course, then our, our physical death. And both of those are overcome in the resurrection. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the uh, historical method and how we think about uh, things that happened in the past. I think, um, you know, the famous like Easter song, Ask Me How I Know He Lives. He Lives. You might know this is an old song. Anybody know how this song ends? So, Ask Me How I Know He Lives. He lives within my heart. This is podcast. I probably shouldn't have done that. Um, but so I think that is a legitimate answer to Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? You can say yes. In fact, most people in my family who I love who have been Christians for a while, I think would answer something like that. I know it's true because I feel the Holy Spirit telling me it's true. That's a real answer, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I believe that. I think the Holy Spirit convicts us of truth. But, of course, sometimes either you're having doubt in your own life or maybe you're talking to someone who wouldn't accept that kind of of spiritual answer. So you say, well, is there another way that we can know that the resurrection is true? Maybe it's not just he lives in my heart. Maybe we can ask a historical question. And so what I want to do for the next 25 minutes is is approach the... um, the reality or unreality of the resurrection the same way we would look at any kind of historical event. Did Caesar really cross the Rubicon? Did Was George Washington the first president of America? Did he chop down a cherry tree? Spoiler, probably not. It's <laughs> probably made up. But, you know, so all these questions, we look at them through the tools 
of, um, of history, of academic history, and we can come to some kind of conclusion. So what we're going to do is called, um, it's called a um, inference to the best explanation. So, and it's really what you do is you find facts that you can identify in history that are true. So you, we have enough evidence to support this fact having actually occurred. And as you see how many of these facts you line up, what do we really know about this event? And then, what's the explanation for all the things we do know? So, um, maybe to put it like in a kind of a modern context, maybe more helpful. So, let's say that we know um, that there was some kind of parchment um, that has what's called the Declaration of Independence on it. And so, there's this thing where people said that they want to um, succeed, secede from Great Britain. And there's also political documents over in Great Britain where they talk about you know those rebellious Americans wanting to, to get away. And then we have um, both autobiographies and biographies of contemporaries talking about these different um, uh, American um, founders and, and how they played in politically for this event to happen. And so then you put all that together and you say something like the Revolutionary War and um, the Constitutional Convention happened around that time. And the reason we can say that is because all this evidence around it the best explanation for all those things existing is, it's, is that a constitutional convention actually happened. Right? So I want to do the same thing with the, the resurrection. Of course, this is admittedly a, a little bit different enterprise. It's more like doing um, like first century, second century Roman history, um, which is we have less, ev less evidence because there's just less writings around that period. But you still say, based on the evidence we do have, what's the ex best explanation for that evidence having existed? Okay, so that's, that's how we want to... Uh, to think about this. So there's three great facts that almost all historians who study this period in ancient history agree on. I think it should be said here, you know, I think most, if not all of us, kind of grew up in uh, Christian culture at least, and probably most of our families were even Christian. So when you hear like biblical um, biblical historian or somebody who studied first century Palestine, you, we may automatically think, oh, this is probably an evangelical Christian who's doing this. That, that's actually not true. There's a, you know, um, histories of fairly secular fields. So a lot of people who would agree on these facts are not Christians, wouldn't, um, at least Christians as we would understand it, wouldn't um, kind of say that they believe in the kind of the full Christian story, which I think is not something that should make us concerned. In fact, it adds valid validity to their conclusions because we know they're not coming at it saying, oh, this has to be true because they're saying, do we think this is likely true or not? So all that being said, here's three great things that are agreed on by most historians. Fact number one is um, the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth was found empty on the first Easter morning. Okay, you know what? That's obviously the first fact, but we need to fill in some blanks here. So let's do that. So um, resurrection is not revivification. The idea that one comes back to life after death only to die again. Resurrection is a rising after death to physical eternal life. Okay, and so um, I think that's an important theologically for some other arguments that can kind of happen around the resurrection. But let's just understand what the resurrection is. The idea is that Jesus physically rose again to physical eternal life. It's not kind of this Greek idea that he became a spirit and rose, but his body's still in the grave. No, Jesus' physical body came back to life. That's what resurrection means. And then we've talked about this. Christianity can be studied historically. 
In contrast to other religions, Christianity makes claims about events in history. These events can be studied with the same academic tools, that's a blank, that we use to investigate secular, secular history. And in studying history, when historians study the events after the crucifixion, several facts emerge that form the core of our historical knowledge of what may have happened on the first Easter morning. All right, so now we've got the notes in the PowerPoint and my rambling on all synchronized. And we can talk about fact number one. Okay, so the tomb of Jesus was found empty on the first Easter morning. Okay, so that's this is the first kind of historical fact. You say, well, David, it's one thing to just say something. Why, why do people think that's true? Should we believe the tomb was actually empty? Here are three reasons um, that most historians have concluded the tomb was empty. The first is what we'll call the Jerusalem factor. So I want you to imagine that the tomb uh, of Jesus had been occupied by um, Jesus' body at Pentecost, right? So 40 days after Jesus is, has been crucified, Peter gets up, starts preaching that Jesus has risen from the dead. What would be like a really good move for the people who really want to stir this controversy, not up but down? So you think about like the Jewish authorities, Roman officials, what would be like a great strategy? I think an awesome strategy would have been to go to the tomb, right? Roll back the stone, pull out Jesus' body and drag it right in front of Peter, right? Like right as he's finishing, he like he's like on Acts 2.37, gets Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Then the Roman authorities pull out the the corpse of Jesus and lay it right in front. Like what would have happened if that like it would have been over, right? Like we wouldn't be here tonight, right? We'd be watching the Grizzlies lose another, you know, we'd be doing something else, right? Jordan would be celebrating being done with her test. We wouldn't be here studying that because that would have ended it. Right? So the fact the fact that the, the first Christian preaching that Jesus rose from the dead happened in Jerusalem, I think proves to the fact that the tomb had to be empty. Because if the tomb wasn't empty, obviously the first move there is to produce the body. And why didn't they produce the body? Because the tomb was empty. So had the tomb been occupied, enemies of Christianity could easily have produced the corpse of Jesus in the very city where the first Christians were proclaiming that their Messiah had risen. The second thing I would say is the Jewish response. So Matthew 28, if you want to go back and read this tonight, but not just Matthew 28, a lot of secular sources, Justin Martyr, Toledoth Jesu, Typho 108, Tertullian, and On Spectulius 30, these all share the Jewish response to the disciples' claim of resurrection. So see if you can remember back like from Sunday school growing up, they, Jesus is buried in the tomb, right? Then they have this argument. The disciples say, Jesus rose from the dead. What was the Jewish response? So a response could have been, um, he didn't rise from the dead because he's in his body's in the tomb. It's a corpse. But they said what? Yeah, the response was they stole the body. What does that presuppose? That his body's not in the tomb, right? So the, the response to Jesus being... You know, the response to the claim that Jesus rose from the dead, the response of the tomb, the body was stolen, presupposes the tomb was empty. So I think from the very beginning, even the enemies of Christianity were agreeing the tomb is empty. The third thing, and this is, you know, I wish that this kind of wasn't true, um, I guess, but I, I do think that it is kind of a compelling historical fact. So you got to kind of put your shoes, your mind, in, in the perspective of kind of a misogynistic culture frankly, that respected men's opinion more than women, right? And so if you're trying to tell a story in that culture, 
who do you have tell the story? Well, you have men tell the story because men's testimony is respected more than women. So that's the exact culture that they were in. So the testimony of women was not highly regarded in first century Israel. The famous first century Jewish historian Josephus says the testimony of women was not even allowed in a court of law. So that sounds like ridiculous to us, and it is. But imagine if the Gospels had been legendary accounts rather than historic biographies. If you were just making up a story to get other people to believe, who would you have had discovering the body? We'd have like Paul, right? He'd be a good choice. He's like this respected uh, Jewish scholar. Or certainly, if not Paul, then maybe like Peter or John or some of the um, male apostles. But they didn't. They had... They had these women, so depending on which accounts, either Mary, Mary, Martha, but that's who discovered the tomb. So why would you tell a story that way? You would tell a story that way if you were interested in telling the truth, even if it was embarrassing. So it's kind of embarrassing to tell a, a misogynistic culture that the most important event in the history of the world that forms the core foundation of your religious beliefs about life and eternity, that w- the people who first discovered that were people who most of the culture wouldn't, re- wouldn't regard as reliable witnesses. But the reason you tell the story that way is if you're interested in truth. So this is called the criterion of embarrassment, if you remember from like your, col- your college history class. But if something in history would be embarrassing to record for the author, we regard that as most likely true. Because people wouldn't make up something that's embarrassing about themselves, right? So if I'm, you know, if you're reading my journal or, you know, hundred years from now, please, you know, <laughs> but, and, and there's something in there about, you know, a particular sin I'm struggling with or something I'm confused about or doubts I'm having about myself and, you know, if I can do, that's it's likely true because I wouldn't make up negative things about myself and write it down. If I'm going to write something negative down about myself, it's, it's probably true, right? And so that's uh, how the third fact plays in. So the tomb was probably empty. The reason we think that the Jerusalem factor, the Jewish response, and the testimony of women. So um, here's a, a quote there from um, William Wan at the end. It says, all the, hist- all the strictly historical evidence we have is in favor of the empty tomb. Those scholars who reject it ought to recognize they do so on some other ground than that of scientific history. All right, fact number two. We're, this is kind of a long sentence, but let's, I'll read it just to kind of get it all, all in there. Both followers and enemies of Christ experience what they believe to be appearances of Jesus after his death in multiple locations to individuals and to groups. <clears throat> that may be kind of, you might kind of smell whiffs of supernaturalism in that, in that fact, but read it for what it is. Followers and enemies of Christ experience what they believed to be appearances of Jesus after his death. So why would all these historians believe that something like that is true? Well, it's really for two reasons. The first is that they claimed it. So, of course, if you claim something, it doesn't mean it's true. You could be lying. You could be um, you could be deluded. You could you know you could be having you know some kind of uh, psychiatric illness. But if you but if something is true, you probably would claim it. And so this is the testimony of history is pretty universal on this. So I just listed some, some citations there, but Luke 24, Acts 1, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 5, Acts 10, Acts 13, then 1 Corinthians 15, which we read earlier. The preaching of the New Testament church from the very beginning was that Jesus rose from the dead. So these people believed Jesus rose from the dead, and they said, not only did it happen, they said they saw it. So Peter, John, even Paul, the, fir- the first preaching of the first Christians was, he rose from the dead, and I know he rose from the dead because I saw him. Okay, so now let's think about 
the second point was that not just they didn't just claim it, but they believed it. So follow me, because I think this is maybe um, the most important kind of idea in the whole lesson. So the disciples not only made claims, but they believed them. So they believed these claims. We know this is true because virtually all of Jesus' disciples were willing to die for their belief that they had seen Christ risen. This is recorded in at least seven ancient documents, including Clement, Polycarp, Tertullian, Ignatius, and Oregon. Liars, as it's been said, make poor martyrs. It's easy to claim a lie or maybe even live a lie, but no one is willing to die for a lie. So I think we know this from political history. The example that's often given when somebody gives this talk is the Watergate scandal and the Nixon administration, right? So there was kind of this small inner circle in Nixon's cabinet, five or six people that kind of really knew what happened, right? And they knew that they had broken into the Watergate hotel, they would stolen the documents during the election, and they kind of got together and said, we got to keep it quiet because of the political implications. And so that lasted like about a week, right? Because <laughs> what happened is they put him on the stand and they said, you're going to jail for 20 years unless you tell the truth, right? And everyone just started talking, right? Like immediately, everyone started telling the truth. And I think that says something kind of unique about human nature. If you're lying about something, you're not going to be martyred for it, right? You're probably not even gonna accept like going to jail for 20 years for it. You're certainly not gonna get crucified upside down, have your head cut off, be tortured, right, for something that you know is not true, right? And so here's the last point I wanna make. The disciples are unique in the history of all religious martyrs and that they lived in a unique place and time in history to know whether or not they were telling the truth. This isn't the same thing as a modern-day religious radical who dies for what he believes. The disciples died for what they knew. Think about Peter. He had either seen the resurrected Jesus or not, and yet he was willing to die a death of torture for the claims that he had. So he claimed it, and he was willing to be tortured for the claim, right? If, if, these, people had not, if these people didn't believe they had seen Jesus... One of them, probably several of them, I'd even argue all of them, would have recanted, right? It's, if you're lying about something, a good time to recant is when the torture starts. In spite of that, that didn't happen. And, and even in spite of the fact that you've got a lot of ancient historians who would love to tell the story of the apostle who recanted under torture or whatever threat. And so that didn't happen. So that has led a lot of... Um, a lot of historians, even most historians, believe that these disciples thought they were telling the truth. Here's how Garrett Ludemann uh, sums it up. He's a, a non-Christian historian of ancient history. He says, It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. All right, fact three. Some event in first century Palestine produced a radical transformation in the beliefs of large groups of people, causing them to convert to Christianity. So what do I mean by this? I mean that large groups of people at a certain date and time changed what they believed religiously and adopted a new worldview. And so this has happened, of course, in other times in, in human history. You have this surge or this radical increase in a certain worldview, uh, whether it be Islam or Mormonism or you know some different um, 
worldviews. And so the, the question you ought to ask as a historian is, what's the best explanation for that? And I guess we don't have time to go into it tonight. We may do it in a series down the road. But I think there are good explanations for these other world religions. You can explain it geopolitically. You can explain it because of violence in a, in a few situations. And so I think all we should ask of Christianity is the same kind of question. How do you explain in first century Palestine, at around the time of, of Pentecost in 33 AD, why all these Jewish people, people who were um, antagonistic and enemies of Christianity, all of a sudden started saying that Jesus rose from the dead? What, what do you... Um, submit is the best explanation for that. So let's think about three groups of people. The first is going to be first century Jews. First century Jews. So for a first century Jew, Jesus had not just undergone what in their minds was a heretical death. For them, an individual who was killed by crucifixion was considered cursed by God, not God in the flesh. So I think it's important to put your mind in some, for, in, into someone else's worldview. So to a first century Jew, being crucified on the, you know, they weren't wearing cross necklaces, right? They had a totally different picture of this. To be crucified on a cross was to be condemned by God. Cursed is the man who's murdered on a tree. I mean, it's, it's Old Testament teaching. That's definitely the way that they would see it. Judaism supplied no theological foundation for belief in a dying, much less rising Messiah. So think about when Lazarus dies, right? As Jesus goes to see Mary and Martha, they're totally distraught. Jesus tells Martha he will rise. And what does Martha say? Martha says, oh, I know he will rise at the resurrection, at the end of time. But, but I miss my brother now, is, is her point. So that was a Jewish thought, resurrection. But there was no concept of resurrection in the middle of history. The resurrection happened at the end of time. Despite having every predisposition against the belief and no religious foundation in which to ground their belief, so there's no reason to think that this would happen, the disciples suddenly came to believe that their leader had risen from the dead. So there's no reason to think this. There's no um, kind of conviction or, or stream of Judaism that was expecting uh, a rising Messiah. And suddenly, in 33 AD, right after Pentecost, hundreds of people begin to believe this. And then secondly, let's think about enemies of Christianity. Enemies of Christianity. So the second group I want to look at includes an enemy of Christianity and a skeptic. So the Apostle Paul murdered Christians. He murdered Christians. And then his brother, James, was embarrassed by the way Jesus was behaving. So does anybody have a brother? So I have a brother. I think he's a great guy. It would take a lot for me to believe that he was the Messiah, right? And in fact, if he went around claiming that he was the Messiah, it would be embarrassing to me and my family, and I would try to like kind of hush him up about it. That seems to be kind of James's perspective. Like in the Gospels, there's this story like the family kind of gets together and like go tell Jesus to kind of quiet down, and James is a part of that. But for some reason, Paul and James both suddenly um, begin to believe in Jesus. So. Um, the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul, was an enemy and persecuted the church. He literally murdered Christians for the purpose of destroying what he considered to be a false religion. James was the brother of Jesus, and he considered Jesus to be an embarrassment to him and his family. The conversion of Paul and James are especially convincing because both Paul and James, despite their strong opposition to Christianity, came to suddenly believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah and the Savior of the world. I think any account of the historical events around um, you know, 33 A.D., the first Easter, whatever you want to call it, has to account for you got these large groups of um, formerly religious Jews 
who have no predisposition to believing in a resurrection in history, and you've got people who are really antagonistic to this new religious movement changing their mind and coming to believe it. So what's the explanation for that? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and then he appeared to James. So Paul says that the resurrected Jesus appeared to James. I think that would do it for me. If I saw my brother executed, and then I saw him a couple weeks later risen from the dead, that would be a profound religious experience. It would make me consider some of the crazy things he had been saying, you know, six months, 12 months, two years ago, right? You kind of reconsider some of those things. And of course, James becomes an important elder in the church, at the church in Jerusalem, the city that Jesus was buried in. So N.T. Wright uh, says this, which I think is uh, kind of profound. He said, that is why as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind. N.T. Wright is a famous Christian historian. He's written a lot of important stuff. So that, of course, is not um, that, of course, is not where the argument ends. Um, if you make an argument that has such profound spiritual and religious consequences, there are going to be opponents to that argument that are going to propose alternative theories. And so, I just want to go through a few of them real quick here. But the first would be the conspiracy theory. The conspiracy theory. So this would be the idea that the disciples. Um, and the, the first followers were all in on it. We're all in on it. So what what do we think about this? Well, this is fraught with problems. The disciples believed, that's the blank there, in the resurrection. There were resurrection appearances. There's the conversion of Paul and James, and ultimately it only explains the empty tomb. So if you're going to say um, that, yeah, it's a conspiracy, you have trouble explaining all the circumstances around the first Easter, so to speak. So, yeah, maybe a conspiracy would explain the empty tomb, but it doesn't explain why the first Christians were willing to be martyred. It certainly doesn't explain all this preaching about that he rose from the dead, and it doesn't explain, um, and it doesn't explain the conversion of Paul and James. So if there's a conspiracy, and the disciples were in on it, well, why do these enemies of Christianity start to believe, and why do these... Um, religious Jews start to believe, and maybe most importantly, why are people willing to be murdered for a conspiracy that they know is a hoax? It just doesn't doesn't add up. And that's why, really, in the academic realm, the conspiracy theory is no longer really um, a credible um, credible idea. It's not, it's not the most popular thought. So then the, this other thing is the apparent death theory. You guys may have heard of this, this idea that Jesus... Um, sometimes it's called the swoon theory. He didn't actually die on the cross. Everyone just kind of thought he was dead. So they pulled down an almost dead Jesus and put him in the tomb. And then you know, two or three days later, he woke up, came out of the tomb, and convinced everyone that he rose from the dead. That would explain some things. It would explain an empty tomb. It would explain why people believe that they saw him risen from the dead. Right. See, so if, if that had happened, that would explain some of uh, the events around, you know, AD 33, this, this first... Um, the first Easter. I do think that there's some big problems with this. So it's pretty cool to be able to like say this in this group, but there's a JAMA article in March of 1986 talking about crucifixion and like, is it medically reasonable that this could have happened? So I'm actually going to read it to you. This is by W.B. Edwards. This is March 21st, 1986, a JAMA article. Jesus of Nazareth underwent Jewish and Roman trials, was flogged, and was sentenced to death by crucifixion. The scourging produced deep, stripe-like lacerations and appreciable blood loss. It probably set the stage for hypovolemic shock as evidenced by the fact that Jesus was too weakened to carry the crossbar to Golgotha. At the site of the crucifixion, his wrists were nailed to the 
um, patabulum, that's the crossbar, and after the patabulum was lifted onto the upright post called the stipes, his feet were nailed to the stipes. The major pathophysiologic effects of crucifixion was an interference with normal respirations. Accordingly, Jesus resulted primarily from hypovolemic shock and exhaustion asphyxia. Jesus' death was ensured by the thrust of a soldier's spear into his side. Modern medical interpretation of the historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead when taken down from the cross. So that's pretty cool. This is in the Journal of the American Medical Association, evidence for uh, the resurrection of Jesus. The other thing I'd say is, really, this is an argument from last century. So there's this famous um, agnostic historian named David Strauss. He didn't believe in the resurrection, but he actually made the argument that kind of ended this. And he said he just invited his readers to imagine Jesus crucified. He's kept up there for like 12 hours. He kind of swoons, faints, whatever. They take him off. They think he's dead. They put him in the tomb, and then he wakes up. So imagine that all that happened, Okay. Then the apparent death theory asks us to imagine that not only is he, does he wake up, he's capable of unwrapping all the loincloth, rolling back this gigantic stone, walking several miles to where the disciples are, and then when his disciples see him, they're, they're not filled with compassion for their former leader who's now you know, in physical distress just having been crucified. They see him and believe that he is risen from the dead in glory. Right? That's ludicrous. That's ridiculous. If Jesus really did swoon, the reaction of the disciples would have been, let's get him to a doctor. <laughs> right? The reaction wouldn't have been like to worship and pro proclaim his resurrection. So, like I said, Strauss isn't a Christian, but his argument is really kind of putting an end to this apparent death idea. Third would be the hallucination theory. So this is, uh, of course, just the idea. Maybe all the disciples just were, maybe everyone was hallucinating. So they really, they really believe, they preached that Jesus rose from the dead, and they believed it, but they were all, you know, hallucinating. They were, you know, on whatever. So this is psychologically imp impossible. The disciples had no evidence of drug abuse or psychological disease. Maybe you don't want to be a Christian, but you can't read the New Testament and think uh, that this was written by a schizophrenic you know, crazy person. Um, some of you guys may have been on your uh, psychiatry rotations. I guess, I guess Will, of course, has. And those people don't write things like Romans. <laughs> I mean, those, pe those people are not writing, uh, you know, theological treaties. And uh, I, I think we have good reason to believe that the disciples were psychologically healthy and not on drugs. The other thing is the frequency, number, and nature of the appearances makes hallucination theory improbable. So there's nothing in the psychiatric literature about large groups of people having the same hallucination at the same time, right? Hallucinations, I mean, you, like you learn in semester school, hallucinations are personal individual events. So I may believe, I had a patient who really believed, he wasn't lying to me, he believed that there were snakes crawling on the wall. He really believed that. But... Uh, um, his friend, who was also schizophrenic, sitting next to him, was having a different hallucination. They were not sharing hallucinations. Their brains were not connected into this like simultaneous hallucination. So maybe you throw hallucinations out there, but just the literature on, in the psychiatric world, that's not what hallucinations are. That's, that's not what happened. And then hallucinations also fail to deal with the full scope of the evidence. If, the halluc if hallucinations was the best explanation, what would have happened? Well, right when Peter was getting to the punchline, fixing the offer of the invitation, the tomb would have been in the body. Cause in the, the, I'm sorry, the body would have been in the tomb because all these people were hallucinating, right? The, the, they were hallucinating about something that would, would not have been actual, and the uh, enemies of Christianity could have produced a body. So for those reasons, I think hallucinations is not the best explanation. So what are we left with? 
after a historical survey, I think my best and honest attempt at the alternative possibilities, I think that the disciples' answer to this question is pretty reasonable. Their answer was, the tomb was empty because he rose. We saw him because the grave couldn't hold his glory. Everything we believed about who we are and our religion has changed because we saw our king. He wasn't scared and weak, but he was in resurrected victory. The miracle of Easter is not just reasonable, it's meaningful. So think back to 1 Corinthians 15, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the first explanation for why the tomb was empty. And it seems to me to be pretty reasonable. But let's kind of come back to where we began. So yeah, it's reasonable. Yeah, it's intellectual. Does it matter? And I just want to say the same things I said at the beginning of tonight. I think it matters. And maybe, you know, maybe I may or not be able to say this in the most articulate way, but I really believe this. It matters because if Jesus rose, your life matters, right? So what you do today matters. How hard you work matters. How hard you study matters. The patients you take care of matter because they're not just accidents. They're loved by the Creator who died for their sins and rose from the dead to conquer the power that sin and death have over them. So your life matters. Also, your suffering matters. All the patients that we take care of that have all kinds of suffering, some of it understandable, some of it that seems over the top and capricious, and we'd have no explanation for how a human can be in that situation. If Jesus was from the dead, there's a good answer to those kind of questions. Maybe not a good um, answer in the moment that relieves suffering, but a good answer for what the future holds. There's reason to be hopeful if Jesus rose from the dead. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then all our suffering will one day be conquered, right? Because our sin will be conquered and death will be conquered. And then finally, and most importantly, is that it gives the answer to salvation. So what's the most important question in your life? Well, if Jesus rose from the dead, the most important question in your life is how can you have the same power in you that rose Jesus from the dead? And if he rose from the dead, you can be united with God forever in heaven uh, through trust in Jesus. So I want to end um, with a quote here by Craig. He says, The significance of Jesus the significance of the resurrection of Jesus lies in the fact that it was not just any old Joe Blow who's been raised from the dead, but Jesus of Nazareth, whose crucifixion was instigated by the Jewish leadership because of his blasphemous claims to divine authority. So remember, Jesus claimed to be God, was murdered for claiming to be God, and then, seems to me, rose from the dead. If this man has been raised from the dead, then the God who he allegedly blasphemed has clearly vindicated his claims. And that is all I got. Okay, so I want to thank David for wrapping up our apologetics series. I love this lesson. I really love uh, just the way in which it's organized and just, uh, just the amount of information that uh, David was able to get across in just 40 minutes. On a topic that is just infinitely worthy of our time, and it's infinitely important, certainly if you believe it. Uh, so hopefully you've gotten a lot out of this apologetic series. Uh, we said this in the discussion that followed. Um, this does not, not every one of these topics, does it get you to a place of you know, Christian uh, belief. It might just get you to theology, or it might just get you to sort of a, a deism. Uh, but I think collectively, hopefully, it gets you to a place of believing in Jesus Christ and a Judeo-Christian sort of sense. Um, there's a lot more, of course, in terms of apologetics. A lot of really wonderful books on the topic. would be happy to discuss these issues with you further. And at some point in the future, maybe we'll do an apologetics part two series 
with some more of these questions. We only have four weeks left, and we're going to do a series called Reflect. It's going to be on how we should reflect the image of God. And so we believe that we're created with the Imago Dei, or the image of God, and we'll talk about what that means next week. We'll go into a series on, uh, or sorry, a lesson on manhood and womanhood from a biblical perspective, and then we'll finish up then with looking at kind of our culture and how it contrasts with the image of God and just kind of summarize all that and discuss together. And then we'll have a big celebration at the very end of the year. So hope you guys are having a wonderful week. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week, and hopefully you can come join us next Monday, 7 p.m., and uh, we'll get some more information about that on Facebook. So we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.